Um, have any of you ever been out west to the Bridger Wilderness Area? It's a, I don't know even exactly where it is. It's one of these places where you go off in the woods and climb up in trails and stuff like that to be in the mountains. Uh, but uh, uh, what I'm going to read to you is a, a list of actual comments. And these sound made up, but they're not. They're real comments that people left on their comment cards after visiting. And remember, they went on purpose to visit the Bridger Wilderness Area. They didn't take a wrong turn. They went there because they were trying to go there. Um, here's one. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Uh, too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Please pave the trails. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. I, I, I've actually seen that. Um, the coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. Here's my favorite. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? <laughs> Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice on the trailhead. Too many rocks in the mountains. So obviously uh, that's, that's kind of funny, kind of silly, uh, but the point is uh, they should have known better. You know, they went to the wilderness area because it's wild, um, and yet uh, you know, they kind of wanted part of it, but not all of it. And, and I hope we'll see how that's connected to the, uh, the sermon Jesus told. Um, Jesus is going to use parables here in a different way than what we've seen before. This is our second month study in parables, and here he uses them almost like a modern preacher uses them. He does a sermon, and then he uses two stories to kind of illustrate the message. Uh, that's, you know, 2,000 years later, preachers still do it that way. I think we, we learned it from him. Um, remember, as we look for the parables, though, we've learned some tools already over the last few weeks. Look for the surprise. He's going to smack you in the face with it in the very first line. Um, what does the audience expect, and how does his story defy those expectations? Uh, who are the good guys and bad guys? What's the one main point he wants us to get out of this? Oftentimes, we try to turn parables into allegories and overanalyze and try to make a symbol out of everything in the parable. But usually, Jesus has one main idea he wants us to get from this. Um, this time, he's got a very different audience. Uh, so far, he's, had a, he's talked to Pharisees and experts in the law. Um, he talked to uh, one parable he told just an individual Pharisee named Simon. Uh, the last parable we looked at, he told just to Peter. And sometimes he's using them to kind of explain his behavior. Uh, they're questioning him, challenging him, and he's explaining why he behaves the way he does. Other times, he's uh, answering their questions, uh, trying to illustrate a point. Here, he gives them this shocking sermon and then uses the parables to amplify what he means by the sermon. Uh, let's go ahead and take a, a quick look back. Um, Luke 14, verse 25. Large crowds, notice, um, he's got a, a big audience, a big congregation, and it seems almost that this sermon is designed to thin the herd. There are too many of you guys. Uh, I'm going to give you a message that will uh, you know, separate the serious ones from the from the fair weather friends and, and move you on out of here. Uh, it seems, can you picture a preacher doing that today? Yeah, I got a message that'll get rid of some of you. Um, you know, buckle up, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna scare some of you away today. But that's kind of what Jesus did. Uh, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if you've got, you got a problem with too big a crowd, you know, preach a message like this, that'll solve it right away. They won't all be back next week. Right away we see some troublesome language. You know, there's a huge shock in here. 
hate your family, your father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters. Um, this seems to plainly contradict clear language of Scripture elsewhere in the Bible, right? Husbands are commanded to love our wives. Uh, children are, are commanded to honor their parents. So how can this be that the Bible doesn't contradict itself? So there's got to be something deeper. What, you know, what does this mean? And, and what I believe it means is that this is, the word hate here is figurative language. It's a, a, an Israeli or Israelite uh, literary device called absolutism, I think, where, where your love for one thing is so great that everything else feels like hate. It literally means to love less. And so what this is figurative language suggesting a priority of relationships. Uh, we should be loyal, I believe, to the members of our family. The Bible plainly teaches that. But ultimately, our loyalty, our primary loyalty is to Jesus. Now, when I explain it that way, it doesn't seem quite as obnoxious as hate them. But still, that's not an easy thing to swallow either. What if anybody else was standing in front of you and saying, if you want to follow me, I mean, picture a disciple as a student. Uh, picture any of your teachers saying this in a classroom setting. If you want to be my student, you got to love me more than your family, more than your wife, more than your kids, more than your uh, brothers and sisters. If anybody but Jesus tells that to you, run away. You know, don't, 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 don't stick around. Not a good teacher. Um, and so it's still not. Jesus is commanding our ultimate allegiance. But that's still not an easy thing to swallow unless you're convinced he's who he says he is, unless you're convinced he's the Messiah. But because of who he is, there is a logic to this. Your relationship with Christ is the only one that's not going to be tainted by sin on both sides. Now, I love my wife, but she's got a sinful husband. And, and as much as she'd like to count on me, the only one she can count on to love her purely and completely, with no sin, is Jesus. And so as, as much as we want to be good parents to our kids, our kids have sinful parents, um, parents who are tainted by sin nature. But your relationship with Jesus is only, only tainted by sin nature one way, and that's your way, not his way. And so he's the only one we can count on to love us purely and completely, and also, of course, to have the knowledge and the power to make wiser decisions than we can make even for ourselves. And so there's a logic to submitting to him that doesn't come, that, that doesn't apply if we're submitting or giving our complete allegiance to anyone else. The Bible clearly calls us to love, but it's in the name of Jesus. It flows out of our, our allegiance to him that we are able to love and serve others. <clears throat> Usually, there's no conflict. I don't have to hate my wife to, to, to love Jesus. I don't have to hate my family to love Jesus. Most of the time, especially in our context where we live in a society that's, that's at least neutral most of the time towards faith. Um, you'll, you know, unlike other parts of the world where you can actively be persecuted for being a Christian, um, most of the time you come to faith, you come to an allegiance in Jesus, and your family will celebrate that, right? Like, and most of you know this about me, that in my young adult years I was not an active disciple of Jesus Christ, that I was kind of a you know, self-centered guy. And uh, surely not applying the Bible standards to my life to see how I measured up. Yet I came to a crossroads in my life, and, and things changed for me. And from Gina's perspective, I think she would tell this story, the new version of her husband seemed like an upgrade to her. She celebrated the change rather than, oh, what happened to this, you know, how to get this Jesus freak, you know, in my house. And, and yet, not everybody responded that way. I got a friend, uh, 
uh, Barry, my family knows Barry, a uh, dear friend of mine from South Carolina. Uh, we worked together for a time. We were friends over a decade. And I can remember Barry pretty much expressed this attitude to me uh, uh, several years ago. I'm really glad you got your life straightened out, but did you really have to turn into a Jesus freak in order to get it done? And the answer is kind of, yeah, I, I think I did, yeah. Um, but uh, um, th- that cost us. You know, our relationship was not as close, and yet it wasn't built on a really firm foundation. It can even cost you and your family. Most of you aren't going to have your families turn their backs on you because of your faith, but you might encounter some ridicule. You might encounter some scorn, some, you know, some, some of you who have uh, parents who aren't really into your faith you know, think at, at best you're just wasting your time spinning your wheels, right? Um, I have a story. It's sort of funny to me because enough time has passed. Years ago, we were visiting some family out, um, uh, out west, and uh, a, a part of my extended family, I won't go into too much detail, but it uh, turns out they were going to treat us to a, a day at the water park which just seemed really nice and generous, and they kind of expressed it that way. And uh, you remember the story I'm going to tell? And, and I remember as, the, uh, as we got closer, I realized that their idea of treating us to the water park was, you know, they were locals, and they'd figured out how to work the system so they could get in without paying. And, uh, and the funny part to me was when I objected to that, they looked at me like I was just a freak. Like, like what's wrong with you? you know, um, and... Uh, and I can remember feeling pretty awkward uh, because I, I mean, these are people I love who love me, who thought they were doing a really good thing for me, helping me get in without paying. <laughs> and yet uh, the fact that that didn't sit well with me or, or Gina uh, um, kind of left us feeling on the outside. A few years later, I bought a car from an extended family member, and uh, we agreed on a price. Again, he was being generous with me. I thought... Um, I thought he made me a good deal. And when it came time to fill out the bill of sale, this wouldn't have occurred to me, but he said, you know, we can put on here an amount a good bit less than what you're actually paying, and that way you'll only owe taxes on the amount we put on the bill of sale uh, instead of on the full amount. And again, I think he was trying to be generous. He gave me a good price in the first place, and I think he was trying to save me some tax money in the second place. I think it was hard to be generous but, of course, I wasn't comfortable with that. And I, I think it, uh, um, I, I, there was this moment where it kind of dawned on him. Oh, yeah, you're the freak that didn't want to go to the water park for free either. Uh, um, and, uh, and ultimately, he said, whatever helps you sleep better at night. And so, you know, it, was, it wasn't like overt hostility. I wasn't in danger or anything like that. But I could tell he felt like I was an idiot because because I wouldn't take advantage uh, in ways that I could. And so yeah, sometimes it'll come up in subtle ways, sometimes more overt ways. But the point is, Jesus is make, the, the point Jesus is making here is your loyalty to him has to come first. Out of that will flow lots of love. Um, and, and for the most part, you know, the people who surround you will appreciate and sometimes applaud uh, you know, the decisions in your life that, that, that lead you to put Jesus first. And they won't even feel like second place. But if there comes if there comes a crossroads, you got to choose Jesus. This word disciple that you see at the end, you cannot be my disciple. Very negative sermon. Jesus says three times, you cannot be my disciple unless this, unless that. It's um, it's the most common word in the New Testament for follower of Jesus. It's used two hundred sixty nine times in the New Testament. What what's the more common word we use for follower of Jesus? 
in our society today, we're more likely to call those people Christians, right? That word's only used <clears throat> three times in the New Testament, but they're synonyms. This word disciple and the word Christian are synonyms. You can see that in Acts eleven twenty six, The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so um, Luke makes it plain that these are the same people, disciples and Christians, and yet disciples is the preferred term in the New Testament. So when we're reading this thing about disciples, we need to be reading it about us. Uh, Jesus is talking about if, you, if, if we want to be his disciple, you know, the message is the same as it was for these people 2,000 years ago. It gets even... It gets even more serious. Not only do we have to prefer Jesus over or, or be loyal to Jesus first over anybody else in our family, but even over ourselves, even over our own lives. Look at verse 27. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, uh, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, the cross um, really belongs in a torture museum more than in a uh, on a gold chain around our necks. I'm, I'm not dishonoring, I'm not saying that's a bad idea uh, to identify your faith, because you know, maybe that's one of your ways of saying, I'm going to take up my cross, or maybe reminding yourself, I'm going to take up my cross. But what I mean is, the idea that it's this, uh, this pleasant reminder of who we are um, sometimes obscures the fact that the cross only meant one thing to people 2,000 years ago. It was not, oh, he's going to be a follower of Jesus. The cross to his congregation meant a method of execution. You know, put the noose around your neck and follow me. Strap yourself in the electric chair and follow me. Climb the gallows and follow me. That's what Jesus was saying. Um, so when, when you hear people say, oh, that dog's just barking so late at night, I guess that's just my cross to bear. I've, I've been trying to lose weight, but I can't lose it, and that's my cross to bear. Or this, I got this annoying thing happening, I guess that's my cross to bear. No, a cross is not an inconvenience. It's not an annoyance. A cross is how you die. And the Romans invented the cross because prior ways of executing people weren't horrible enough. They, they didn't invent the death penalty, and the cross wasn't invented for Jesus. They killed people by crucifixion before Jesus. Mostly they reserved that for rebels, for political rebels against Roman authority. And they wanted to, to kill people in a very uh, slow and painful and humiliating and horrible way so that everyone who watched wouldn't want to go down that path too. And so when Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me, he's not saying put up with inconvenience. He's not saying, you know, be kind to your neighbors or generous. He's saying, die. You got to, well, when you pick up your cross, you walk up to the hill and somebody else puts you to death. So you don't have to die. You just have to be willing to die. You have to, to renounce your hold on your life. You have to give up this idea that self-preservation is my fundamental drive. Now serving Jesus is my fundamental drive. Now, does that mean we're going to die in order to follow Jesus? Well, I haven't found that comes up much. It comes up some, and in the last 2,000 years, plenty of people have died for their faith. In 21st century United States, we don't much have to die for our faith. Yet, does take up your cross only apply if you get to like take a bullet for the ones you love? I, I don't think so. I think taking up my cross means that... <clears throat> I give up my life to serve God and die if necessary, but live if necessary. Um, and more often I found when, I'm, when it comes to serving the Lord or loving my family that it's the decisions that I make in my life that show I've died to selfishness and I've lived, I'm living for, 
there's there, for a higher motivation. Now, <clears throat> this sounds like a weird economy. You know, give up your life and then you're going to gain eternally. But uh, this is all over the scriptures. Family hating, that thing that we talked about first, that seems like a conflict. But this give up your life so you gain it, that's over and over and over again. Um, let's take a look at some of the, uh, the other passages. And just remember as we read these, I believe that renouncing this self-preservation as a kind of a fundamental interest really brings great power and freedom. Because once you give up on, i got to cling to this, i got to hold on to it, make sure it turns out all right, then it doesn't really matter. If, if my highest, if i got my eyes on the prize, if I've got my eyes on heaven, then the things that happen to me between now and then, well those, well, those aren't all up to me, and those just don't really matter. They can't throw me off my game too much because I've read the end and our side wins. Matthew 10.39 says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John 12.25 and 26 says this, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That's what I want. I want to be honored by God. When I get to heaven, I want to to stand before the Lord and hear him say, Well, I like the way you spent your life. that's, uh, those are the words I long to hear. And uh, I think that, that uh, if I'm doing that, if I've got my eyes on that prize, there'll be plenty of blessing flowing out that will affect other people. And that's, you know, that's what, I've, what I've noticed, what I've seen, what I've seen in, in your lives. Um, so it doesn't mean, the, the hating doesn't mean scorning and actively um, rejecting those people. It means putting Jesus first. Let's go on to the parables. Jesus now tells two parables to illustrate his point. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. I went on YouTube yesterday and tried to find a, a video clip of a commercial that I wanted to show here. Uh, I couldn't find it. But maybe some of you are old enough to remember the commercial. It's an old Visa commercial, and it's about a guy who's at a tattoo parlor. And the soundtrack is the Richie Valens song, O'Donna. And so you can hear that song in your head. And the guy's at the tattoo parlor, and the guy's working on his arm, and he turns and says, how much is this tattoo? The guy says, 50 bucks. Um, and so he pulls out his wallet, and he's got $41. And he walks, the next scene, he's walking out of the tattoo parlor, and his girlfriend, Donna, is really mad at him because his tattoo says, I love Don. Uh, That's all he had the money for. So this is a pretty vivid, silly example of a guy who didn't count the cost before he went in. But we've seen this in a variety of settings. You can see it on a sports team. I know you've seen it at church. People who are on fire one month, and the next month, where are they? What happened? And and I don't mean to, to... to suggest an equivalence between devotion to Jesus and service to church, but they're not unconnected. Uh, there, there's, there's definitely a connection, and, but you can see this in any other, in, in a variety of contexts. People who, who start off on fire uh, in any way and then start to fizzle out over the long haul because they didn't count the cost because there wasn't really a commitment there. Second story, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Now, the people who were listening to Jesus were unlikely to experience war as soldiers. 
They were not unlikely to experience war as victims, though. And that's the most common Jewish response to war 2,000 years ago. Um, in fact, notice that the king in this story isn't the invading king. The key player is the, the king who's being invaded. He's, he's got the smaller army, and he's being attacked by double. Um, and I think that's significant, that it's not the other way around. Let's finish that story. Verse 32, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So at first, this looks like another story just about taking stock, about counting the cost. But notice there's a key difference in this story. In the first story, the builder doesn't have to build. He can decide not to build and everything's okay, right? He can save his money and save his energy and... Uh, you know, he, he won't have the building, but he won't have this great loss. But in this story, in the war story, a decision must be made. The situation's been forced on the king, and just sticking with the way things are is not an option. You notice the difference? He's got to decide. And this is one of those decisions I think much more appropriate for our lives today, for your lives today, that a decision must be made. To fail to make a decision is to make a decision. And, and to fail to make a decision is to make the wrong decision. So he, uh, uh, this reminds me of another commercial, the insurance commercial, where the tagline is, life comes at you fast, where the guy, like the young guy's on the diving board, and by the time he hits the water, he's old. Um, this, is, this is that. If, if you delay making a decision about who Jesus is to you, 10, 20 years are going to go by, and you're going to wake up and say, what have I done with my life? And the, the army's coming. And, and oftentimes we, uh, we sort of misunderstand the metaphor, I think, or the, the, the word picture here. Uh, my encouragement to you is not to fight, but to surrender. Because um, life's coming at you fast. There will be a reckoning. You'll stand before the king who's all-powerful with an army much more than twice as strong as yours. And my suggestion to you is surrender quick as you can on whatever terms you can make. And you'll find this to be a very gentle occupation. You'll find this not to be an oppressive surrender. Peter describes it a couple, another way. We're slaves to something, to whatever controls us. You know, your, your freedom as Christians, as, as believers, extends this far. You're free to choose your master. But we're going to be a, a slave to the sin that controls us or to our selfishness that controls us, or we're going to be a slave to, to the Lord. And, and surrendering there and submitting there is not a life of slavery and oppression. It feels that's where, again, where God's economy kind of turns it on its head. That's where true freedom is. So let's sum it up, and you can see why this was such a popular message. Disciples of Jesus must hate, must die, must give up everything. All right, who's ready to come back next week and get some more of this? Um, this word give up, if we translate it to Greek, back to Greek and back to English, it means to renounce. It means literally to say goodbye to. And let's, let's take a look at the other word, because I think there's no confusion here, but this one's hard to apply. Give up what? Everything. And I think that's where, that's where we get to the hard part, because I think what we see in our world today and as, even, um, throughout the churches is this church is a hobby, you know, the, Sunday morning Christianity where I want to give up you know, this much of my life, but there's this thing down in the core I'm going to hold on to because I don't really trust God with that. Or you know, I trust God with my career, but I don't really trust him with my choice of a spouse because, gosh, if I, 
if I surrender to him, he'll make me marry somebody dorky or, you know, ugly or whatever. Well, it's like I can't, we have this wrong view of God that if we surrender to him, he'll make you pay. And yet that's not, that's not the reality of a life of faith. You know, surrender to him and, well, I'll flip it the other way. It's, it's not that you'll, you, if you surrender to him, you'll be sorry. It's, we'll be sorry if we don't. And really the sooner the better. We want to hold on. We, we, why is this hard? It's because we want to hang on to control of our lives. We want to hold on to what we consider to be the freedom to make our own choices. And yet, how's that working? Uh, the, uh, a, a friend of mine told a story years ago about visiting a prison. And he was trying to witness to the guy and present the gospel to him. And the guy said, you know, I'm just not willing to give up my life in order to follow Jesus. And my friend said, you're in a 10 by 10 cell. Your toilet's right there next to your pillow. What is it about your life that's so precious to you that you're not willing to give it up? Um, and the guy, it was the, the control. It was the, the ability to decide. Um, I do want to show a video clip here. I know it seems kind of an awkward time to show up, but I think this kind of illustrates the point I'm talking about. Let's go ahead and roll it.
I know in a room this size, we've got uh, several people likely who are on the wrong side of some of those stats. You know, I, I found myself there. Um, what's your plan? Uh, if not to submit a lot, your life to, to Jesus, if we're not going to surrender to Jesus, what is going to be the guiding force of your life? Something will be. That's a, I don't know if you recognize the title. Those are Bob Dylan lyrics. You've got to serve somebody. And to say I'm not going to choose to serve anybody, um, that, that is a choice, and, and that's the wrong choice. Let's finish the sermon, uh, the sermon that Jesus preached. Verse 34, salt is good, but if, if, if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, I often you know, try to put myself in the place of the congregation who was listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago. And uh, this seems kind of silly to me, but my first thought of looking at this scripture is, Jesus said manure pile? It seems like a very earthy phrase to include in the message. I mean, I think the King James has sort of got us thinking that, that his sermons were going to be more like thou shouldst forsake us all. And, and yet this is a very, a, a very earthy word picture, right? And notice he doesn't say, he's talking about the salt is us. And the people, without, uh, the people who would be disciples yet aren't willing to radically commit to Jesus, he doesn't say you're fit for the manure pile. He says not even. Uh, the Bible's plain on, on lukewarm Christianity. Revelation talks about it being ab abhorrent to Jesus. Um, and this is a, a pretty plain language. Uh, in order to get this, I think it's, it would help us a little bit to think about salt in ancient times. Uh, they used salt in ancient times like we do now to season food, but also in a whole lot of other ways. In the days before refrigeration, all societies who didn't have refrigeration used salt to preserve meat, like uh, jerky. Uh, would be the example of that we have today. They use it for medicine. Anybody who's ever been swimming in the ocean and seeing how your cuts looked afterwards, you can see how the, the medicinal properties of salt. Uh, they also used it as poison. We wouldn't use it that way much today, but like when Rome defeated Carthage for the last time, they plowed salt into their fields to make sure the land would be uninhabitable for, you know, for posterity. Um, and so uh, salt is, is a very powerful metaphor and, and plainly used to represent Christians. Um, Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Salt back then was very valuable because of its scarcity. In fact, it was a medium of exchange. It was used, it was used to pay soldiers um, in, in, the, in the Roman army. In fact, the word salary comes from that. Uh, um, Spanish fans, como se dice salt in Espanol? It's sal, right? Salary comes from the word sal. Uh, and you've probably heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt. Uh, that refers to the fact that it used to be how they were paid. Yet, although it was more scarce and more valuable, it actually wasn't as good a quality as our salt today. They mined it from the Dead Sea, and it was chunkier and had impurities in it. It's hard for us to, I mean, it's hard for us to picture this because we got this, this, 50 cent thing of salt that's this big honking container and it's never going to go bad can you picture taking your salt out of the pantry and smelling it to see if it's still fresh I mean it's, it's going to last forever it seems and yet their salt because of the impurities in it would sometimes lose its flavor and it would be worthless and then it wouldn't you can't poison with it you can't season with it you can't do anything with it you just it's worthless 
And that's what Jesus is saying we are if, if we're not radically committed to him. We're like the salt that's lost its flavor. And then he finishes with this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a message that's easy to understand but really hard to accept. Um, but I think it's hard to accept because we're counting the cost and not the benefits. So let's take a quick look at the benefits. Romans 6 is a very familiar passage, and Paul talks about much the same thing, where you're going to serve somebody. You're going to be a sl- whoever you serve is going to pay benefits. There are going to be consequences to whichever choice you make. Let's take a look. Romans 6.20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter uh, later on in Luke. And Peter says, we've left all we had to follow you. And notice the answer Jesus gives him. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to him, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. So who are you serving? Is it, have you been settling for less than God's best? Is it time for you to trade up? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this uh, clear message from your word. Jesus, help us to uh, help us to accept this hard truth. Help us not to be the uh, fair weather followers of you who uh, turn and run or slink away when it gets hard. But Lord, help us to say yes to this. Lord, help us to surrender our lives to you. And Lord, I thank you for uh, uh, the many ways you show us that a life of surrender to you is a life full of joy, full of opportunity, full of excitement and hope. Lord, if there's anyone in here who doubts that, who's struggling with that decision today, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would communicate your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.